Hello and welcome to The Overview Effect with James Perrin, the podcast all about taking a bigger picture perspective of life on earth, the show where I have in-person, yes, in-person and real conversations with business leaders, environmentalists, not-for-profit founders, indigenous teachers and more, and in today's case, an internationally renowned meditation practitioner, author and Dharma teacher. I'd like to start by acknowledging that this podcast is recorded on Bundjalung land. I'd like to pay my respects to members of the Bundjalung community and First Nations people all around Australia and the world. And I hope you had a chance to listen to my previous conversation, episode 13, with Kyle and Josh Slab, custodians on the north coast of New South Wales and educators on cultural intelligence. If you haven't listened to that episode, I can highly recommend their wisdom. Now, before we get stuck into today's episode, I have a couple of really exciting announcements to make. Firstly, I'm collaborating with RenewFest and Resilient Byron, who are hosting five community forums in venues in the Byron region called the Resilience and Regeneration Roadshow. These forums are a place for storytelling, for learning and generating ideas for system change, for resilience and regeneration in our neighbourhoods. How nice that we can gather and assemble again as a community. I'm very excited to be hosting conversations in these workshops with guest speakers. And I'll be recording and releasing these conversations on my podcast feed over the next few months. The forums themselves are pretty much full, so keep an ear out for those episodes coming soon. Secondly, Next month, in March, I will be heading down to Tasmania to run in the Takana Trail Run, which is a 50-kilometer ultramarathon through the Tarkine Rainforest, and it's all about raising awareness and funds for protecting over 1,000 acres of native Tasmanian rainforest, which is under threat of logging. In fact, most of it is already earmarked for logging. I will be sharing much more about this run and the Tarkine Rainforest and the campaign to protect it in the near future. But please, I ask if you want to find out more about this campaign, click the link in my Instagram bio. uh, And if you can, please donate to the cause. All donations will be going to the Bob Brown Foundation, and they will all be put directly towards conservation efforts in the Tarkine Rainforest. But stay tuned for more information about that important campaign. Okay, to today's episode. Today's episode is not for the faint-hearted. My guest today is a renowned meditation practitioner, author, and Dharma teacher, and she has spent a lifetime specializing in the issues of consciousness and activism. As a former journalist, she's traveled the world interviewing everyone, including Ram Das and the Dalai Lama, twice, mind you. She's authored books, including In the Footsteps of Gandhi and Passionate Presence, and for decades, she's organized and led meditation and silent retreats, and her Dharma Dialogues, which are public events focusing on awareness of one's personal life, are hugely popular and influential. She also has her own podcast called In the Deep, which I highly, highly recommend. But about two years ago, she penned an essay called Facing Extinction, which has been downloaded and read over a million times. Now, a 15,000-word online essay doesn't usually go viral like that, and so that speaks to how profound this essay is. 
and it is this essay which is largely the conversation, the topic of conversation in our episode today. The essay is a reflection of where we find ourselves as humanity in the current state of the world with the climate crisis, ongoing environmental degradation, and our societal unrest, distraction, and denial. It's heavy, and it goes into detail the challenges we face as species. There's a consciousness shift when we reflect on our own mortality. Just like someone lying on their deathbed, it crystallizes the important things in life. In her essay, she describes not what we must do, but how we can be. In this conversation, we talk about getting to a stage of acceptance and how acceptance is a truly radical act in today's world. In a world that wants us to fight with everything, where arguments, divisiveness, different data points of proof, it's, it's rife. Acceptance is a shift in energy. It's moving us to a place of not fighting with everything all the time. It can help us get to a place of being grateful and enjoying being here, being present, just because we are. But it doesn't come without grief, of which there is a lot in this conversation. So with that, I ask that you lay down your arguments, lay down your preconceived ideas and beliefs for this one, and open your mind and your heart to the wisdom of Catherine Ingram. Sure. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. Thank you so much for having me in your beautiful home here in Lennox on a beautiful afternoon. Mm, It's a pleasure. (laughs) Having peppermint tea. Having peppermint tea in a beautiful, sunny, light environment. Where else would you rather be? (laughs) I wanted to start with... The same theme I always start with, with this podcast, which is the, the inspiration and the name behind the show. So it's called The Overview Effect, and it's inspired by this experience, the overview effect that astronauts have when they first go up into space, and they look back and they see Earth from space for the first time. And what I really love about how they describe that experience is that I have this image in my mind of a, an astronaut being the symbol of rational, scientific, calculated, and the astronauts that have this experience describe it as having a greater appreciation of the Earth's beauty, an overwhelming sense of emotion, a connectedness to all living things, and I love that juxtaposition. Mm -hmm. And so I want to start there, and I want to ask you, have you had a moment in your life or an experience or a period of time where you've had a similar altered perspective on the way you see the world and the way you interact Mm. with the world yes well um i actually call those perfect moments and what i mean by them and i've had many of them because i've spent so much time in silent retreats where one is uh, very susceptible to having those not just me but pretty much anyone um what i how i would describe those is that it's a feeling 
I would say even beyond oneness, a feeling of profound okayness with everything. It's just everything is exactly as it is. Mm. So I call those perfect moments because it's a, a momentary vision of what you might call perfection without uh, giving qualitative value to what you might order in your ordinary mind think of as perfection, but rather another way to say it is suchness, that you, you, you fall into a profound acceptance, you could even say love, of the suchness and of the privilege of witnessing it for even a moment. Yeah. Do you experience them often? I do. Yeah? I do. <clears throat> um, sometimes they sneak up on me uh, in ordinary activity, you know, or in my workaday life. Mm. But I would say, again, in the context of a silent retreat, there, one can actually fall into quite a habitual way of perceiving in that way. Mm. Um, it's very, very common. Uh, you know, it usually takes a day or two to kind of have that become the habit of the mind yeah. and of the awareness. But after a couple of days, it's it's very, very usual to have that. You you must almost get the overview overview of the overview effect, which is where you get to experience watching other people experience those moments in those mm, retreats. Yeah, and one of the great, again, privileges that uh, of, of my life is that I've heard descriptions of that um, in all kinds of contexts, in many different countries, in many different circumstances, from very diverse people of very diverse backgrounds. And it's astonishing how consistent the descriptions are and how, you know, someone in Scotland is saying something that reminds me of something I just heard in Hawaii a few weeks before. Um, you know, like, it's almost like one becomes attuned to a certain type of frequency a kind of poetic truth, and then begins describing it. And it has, it has made me realize that a lot of what we consider the mystical poetry of Rumi and Hafiz and various others that is considered mystical works, those were descriptions. Those were like, those were like pure descriptions. They weren't trying to be poetic necessarily at all. They were just describing reality as they were experiencing it. And... Um, so anyway, I have heard those kinds of descriptions over um, not just the 30 years I've been leading these retreats, uh, but the previous 17 years when I was a meditation student in, in the context of Buddhist practice. Yeah. Wow. I think, there's a, I think you're right in saying that there's, there's, there's many different ways that people could potentially experience this. And I think one of those ways is when we are faced or contemplate or reflect on our death and our yeah. potential death, right? Yeah. Yes. And people that we hear so much, so many stories about people that, for example, are diagnosed with a terminal illness and it completely changes their outlook on life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. There are many different ways that, you know, some, some people would describe um, like certainly being in nature mm -hmm. uh, or watching a birth or, as you say, contemplating or being in the presence of a death. Mm -hmm. Um, and these, especially the, the reflection on death, that comes up a lot in retreats. So when I say it, after a couple of days you do find yourself almost as though you've gone through a portal into 
a kind of consistent perfect moment um it's because a lot of reflection and insight has been swirling around and doing its work kind of in the background um, of the attention. And so, yeah, that makes you very ready. And, and certainly people who are, who have, well, who, people who are in hospice, people who have terminal diagnoses um, are prone to having those kinds of insights, those kinds of aha moments, those kinds of getting the priorities straight, finally, realizing the value of life when it becomes so very precious in yes. terms of the obviousness of how precious it is. Yeah. So I want to ask you about your, your essay, Facing <laughs> Extinction, <laughs> on that note. Oh, darn. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go straight there. Um, which you penned almost two years ago now, mm-hmm. and it's had mm-hmm. a quite an over overwhelming traction globally, yes. hasn't it? Read, it has. What over a million? Over a million. Wow. Yeah, that I know of. Yep. And well, I guess firstly, is, what was your what spurred you to write it? Was it was it this that we've just spoken about? This getting the priorities straight and wanting to get into that zone of what's right and what's true and. Well, what inspired me was that for 10 years I had been, in a way, struggling with the material and with what I called in the essay dark knowledge, the dark knowledge of knowing this, seeing it everywhere I looked, seeing every bit of news data pointing in the same direction, and a growing panic and depression and anxiety in myself and feeling very alone Mm. in terms of who to talk to about this and also having a very piecemeal experience of trying to understand all the different components and so in the essay I have so many different I think 11 or 12 different sections that address of course one is dark knowledge which has a lot of it especially the the um, ice and heat data Um, but also overpopulation and grief and social unrest and courage and love and they're they're kind of in you know technotopia uh, my criticisms of the 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 disconnected reality of technotopia and um and so on i have piled them all into one place because for me i had had to sort of find each of those categories and do a deep dive Mm. to try to make sense of things myself also the denial of death that was a big one um and coming finally as i did in my own process to seeing this from an evolutionary point of view and that this is what we did Mm. and having no again a perfect moment having no fight any longer with the fact that that is the case and that is what we did and that is what we're continuing to do yeah getting to that straight to that that place of acceptance you know you you mentioned in in the essay a few times i think the stages of grief the kubler ross stages of grief and i think it that's a really interesting lens to put over it's usually spoken to in regards to a terminal illness or someone's personal physical health but to put a lens over it of our planetary health and our societal emotions that we're moving through um i mean for for anyone that is not familiar with them the first is denial and i think we certainly see that in the world (laughs) the second is anger 
We definitely see that too. I think um, Greta, for example, yeah. can sit in that space some, sometimes or quite a lot and, and a lot of other people, a lot of other um, people that are talking a lot about the climate crisis. Bargaining is an interesting one. Even when I was emailing you about this um, potential conversation, you said, absolutely, but I'm not in the bargaining stage. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about acceptance. Yes. Um, I think most of the progressive world is probably in the bargaining stage. Yeah. Then depression, the next stage. And then what's interesting is acceptance. And when I first heard you talk about that, it kind of scared me. Mm -hmm. And it made me think of giving up. Mm -hmm. And it made me think of hopelessness, mm -hmm. which was probably me actually in that kind of maybe depressive stage. Mm -hmm. But then I, re I came to realize that there's something, there's an energy shift when you move to acceptance. It's a totally different place. And you get out of the... I'm right, you're wrong, do this, do that, and you move into having your own agency and having your control back. Yes, you, yeah, you move out of the fight with what yes. is, you yeah. know, the fight with reality that you lose every time you try. <laughs> yes. And um, so um, the, what's been interesting for me over the course of the last few, few years in particular um, is what I told you, I think, on the phone, that I'm much more interested now in the stages of acceptance. Mm -hmm. And it turns out there's stages of acceptance. Okay. And I'm just continually uh, working with those. Um, you know, just when I think, okay, I've, I've come to some sort of ease about all of this and it's really okay and blah, blah, and I'm, I've processed it. I can have my heart broken wide, split open, splayed open again in, in an instant, you know. And um, now I don't fight with the facts, and I don't, and I don't pretend to any kind of, like you said, bargaining or hopeful visions. Um, mm. What I have to work with a lot is letting in how huge the loss is, how huge the sorrow actually is. And I feel like, as with many things in, in the process of grief, you, it's, it's too hard for a tender heart to have it in one big fell swoop. You have to kind of have it in layers and, and in a kind of gentle soaking. Mm -hmm if you're lucky, because um, <laughs> sometimes it comes all, all of a shock. Uh, so that's what's happening for me in the last few years, is I, I went from like really coming to terms with the fact, as I see them, the fact of our demise and of the demise of pretty much all of the complex life on Earth. So just that alone is enough to just flatten you, you know? and. Um, I went through a lot of depression around that as well. Um, I, as you know, if you've read my essay, I got shingles, which is really an anxiety. It's a stress disease. Um, so, you know, I really I was really going through the wars. And slowly, out of all of that, I, there started to be some kind of calm that came over me. And I occasional whispers of okay okay yes you know this is what's ha this is what it is 
and, and no blame, another one of the names of my sections in the essay, no blame. At, at a certain point, you see there's no one to blame. Yeah. yeah. You know, we all did this. And if, it all, if we got wiped out tomorrow, and if, if in a million years life reformed and creatures like ourselves came along, it would probably happen again. We're, it's in our, di- our DNA. It's encoded. Yes. And so, my, um, my attention floats around on, <clears throat> I do have a lot of moments of incredible sadness. I do have times when I say what we're asked to, what we're being asked to accept is unacceptable. It's for a human creature who's bonded in love to that and who it loves, um, it, it, it's impossible to come to full and profound and total acceptance. It's one thing to accept your own death and to say goodbye to your own loved ones and know that they'll carry on. That's one thing. That's That I can see coming to full acceptance. But this is a bridge too far to say a final yes to all of it. And I so I allow... Um, Plenty of heartbreak is allowed in the acceptance, and a pr- plenty. I have lots of conversations with friends of mine who are sort of in the exact same spot. You know that we've found each other now yeah. <laughs> around the world. <laughs> they tend to be very long distance conversations, like long distance places that I'm speaking to. Um, <clears throat> but um, we're all kind of working with this one. That you know, there are days of depression. There are moments of profound you know just you just feel like you want to die actually you know you just want to escape this um and then other times when as you said you feel very alive and you don't sweat the small stuff so much and you become more authentic yeah you know you don't have time for any pretense and your big legacy projects are off the table you don't have to be somebody. Yes. <laughs> you know, you don't have to be an influencer. <laughs> you don't have to get more Twitter likes or any other thing. Yes. Um, go ahead. Well, I mean, that's. I wanted to ask you about that because when you, when you, when you face that grief and that acceptance, do you? There's that saying: we need to experience the dark to know the light. So when you go down that really dark end of the spectrum and you really feel what that's like, do you find that there are moments where you can go to the other end of the spectrum as well? Because if we only lived in happy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. love and rainbows, mm-hmm. which I think a lot of people in the Byron Shire hope that we live in, just mm-hmm. happiness all the time, mm-hmm. we wouldn't truly know what that is because we haven't experienced the opposite, right? So there's right. something about in that grief and that sadness and that, and that suffering do we do we also expand our horizons in the other direction? Yes, we live on a bigger spectrum when we look when we face reality in all ways, you know, and um, it's a, a bigger spectrum of experience and of life. So mm. when you're closing down one end of the spectrum, it, first of all, you've got to do a lot of tap dancing to stay in that blissful, happy thing. You know, it, you're, you've got to be not paying attention to a lot of things that are going on around you. And inevitably, loss will come, no matter how, you know, groovy your life might seem at any given moment. L- loss is coming. Um, 
but from a dharmic point of view, uh, when there's a clear awareness, you, you, you are automatically living on a larger spectrum in which you understand loss and sadness at one end of it, and mercy and joy and beauty, you know, and well-being and calm on the other. Um, to your question about me personally, I have to say, I'll say this for the first time publicly, I don't have the kinds of unbridled joy that I used to have. Mm. Because some part of my awareness lives in a kind of foreboding. Wow. <laughs> it just is that yeah. way. I'll have to say it honestly. Yeah. And I'm doing this because I know so many people who are going through this and who it's helpful for them to have words to it and to know they're not alone in going through this. So, yes, I still, you know, I go to the ocean and I love a great swim and I feel so lucky. And yesterday I was watching a little bird in the bird bath behind my office and it was dipping into the bath and then standing on the edge and singing and then dipping in again <laughs> and singing. And I felt this leap of my heart and I, I, it was a perfect moment. It was just, the world was just fine, you know. Mm. And so, yes, I do have plenty of that. I find that I, um, I'm more tender with my words. I feel much more connected to my loved ones. I don't want a minute's problem with anybody. If I do see any trouble on the horizon, I step aside. Uh, all of those are really nice ways to live. I really appreciate having food mm. <laughs> and um you know, all the basics I really appreciate a lot. And I don't feel I ever, I don't feel as wildly exuberant as I have in former times. Yeah, okay. And I was never a stranger to loss and suffering. Um, I, I've always had that in my life. But, um, for much of my life, I would be able to have those kinds of incredible, ex exuberant, and just wild laughter meant much of the time and, and so on, you know. Um, I don't quite have that. Mm. I, I, have, I have a sense of sadness about the daily onslaught, which I unfortunately keep up with. Yeah. And also it comes into my <laughs> email every day. Um, what about, do you feel a deeper sense of connection or spirituality even? And, and you make a really interesting point in the essay. You talk about how some people hold religion as, as a kind of sense of denial or escapism. Mm. Um, but I, I want to ask you about your kind of spiritual beliefs and practice. Do you find that you've strengthened in that area of your life? I don't have really what one might call beliefs. Mm. Um, I only make experiments in my own ways, and I discover what it seems true for me, and I sometimes change my mind about certain things because more evidence comes in in, mm. in some category. Um, for me, what people call spirituality comes down to um, how loving a person is, how generous how honest, how authentic, um, how mm. tender, how clear, right? Mm. I wonder if 
and perhaps this is me bargaining, I don't know, but <laughs> it, you said before that we, we were always going to get here. You know, evolutionarily, you think that there's no, there's no one to blame. There's no, at what point do you look back and go, well, that was the, the wrong turn. Right? We, we were destined to be exactly where we are. Yeah, we're right where we were headed, as we're, I said yes. in the essay. And, and so do you think that, I mean, where we are in, in the climate crisis and environmental destruction that we're seeing is really a symptom of a, a deeper cause, which is that of our disconnection from each other and life and society and and perhaps not to go back and fix it but perhaps this moment in time is or the next step in our evolution is to experience that you know if people if uh, we see in, in in times of crisis things like floods and bushfires and those sorts of events we actually do see parts of the community really rally together yeah. and to drop all the the bull, the BS, yes, and to yes. actually truly get to meaningful connection and wanting to help one another and, and what's important. And Can I just jump in here? Yes, to, yeah, please. We do see that, especially in cases where there's still resources, where mm. some people have resources they can share, and out of the goodness of their heart and their general empathy, they're happy to share and perhaps have less momentarily. What will be interesting is to see when the pressures are such that there is nothing extra to share. Um, and we unfortunately have a lot of examples historically and even on Earth right now uh, to see what happens in full collapse of resources. And that gets pretty bad. Mm. So I would also say, in reference to this, you're right that in times of stress, some people turn to, uh, you know, the, the better angels of our, of our nature, That's, that comes forth for them. I'd say it's a minority. Mm. I would say it's a smaller number. Um, so that's a problem. Mm. And I think we can see that on the world stage quite clearly. You know, that there are many people waking up to the cl climate crisis, many people, but the but the majority of people and those in power, <clears throat> those in power are racing full steam ahead yeah. into oblivion. You know, I just saw Pompeo, one of the American politicians, gleefully, I mean, he might as well have been rubbing his hands together, telling some, you know, Davos-type group of people how many resources they're now going to be able to get at up in the Arctic oh, due to yeah. the melting ice. Not just the oil, but all the other minerals and everything else. And he, he was basically speaking about it as though it's going to be this incredible bonanza of wow. wealth. And, and, and probably most of the people, I saw this on national television of the U.S., on CNN, and probably most of the people watching are all thinking, fantastic, right? Mm. So... I just don't have any sense that there's going to be some wave of awakened consciousness or that the people who see clearly uh, our predicament are going to have much influence. Little bits, but mm. nothing much. Mm. Not, not to turn the tide. And even if, even if tomorrow everyone in the world wakes up and says, let's stop putting one more molecule of carbon into the atmosphere... 
we're on track for a lot of warming coming up. Mm. A lot of heat is already baked in. Um, this past November, this November that just was, is the hottest on record worldwide. The new data is showing, this is interesting, the new data is showing a 1.4 degrees centigrade rise from 1981. Wow. A lot of the data is so old, it gets out of date so quickly, but, you know, all of the big... You know, climate conferences are all about trying to hold the line, and we're only at one C up above pre-industrial, which first they were counting as 1750, then they moved up to 18-something or other, early 1800s, because yeah. each time you move it up, you can lower the number that you're above, yes. understand? Yes. So now it's up to 1981, and it's 1.4 up as, wow. of last, as of this past month. And 2020 is on track to be the hottest year uh, on record, even though it's La Nina and it should be cooler, mm. we should have had a dip. We're not getting that dip. So, okay, I'm saying, and many, many, many people are looking at this data that even if we stopped all emissions, lots of the warming is now being produced by other greenhouse gases. Yeah. Methane being one of them, but several others that are horrific. Yeah. Um, nitrous oxide, SF6, it's another one. Mm. It's 20, I think it's 23,500 times more potent more than carbon. So um, as the warming continues, and it seems to be going exponential, there will be a much less ability to feed a population that's going to be 8 billion fairly soon. Yeah. And there's going to be some fighting. Yeah. And so all of these things combine to make it highly unlikely, no matter how hip you become, how kind you are, how sharing we could go all into a sharing economy in our local area and so on. That would be great. And that might, as Jim Bandel describes from a conversation he's had with a pilot, that might extend the glide. So this pilot tells him that one of the things they're trained to do in a plane is to, if they lose engines or an engine, to try to extend the glide mm. so that you can maybe find a nice place to land or maybe try to get the engine going. Or if all that fails, you can make some peace with what's about to happen. Right. So wow. we could, in our local ways in our local behaviors and in our, our raising of our own ethical stance, extend the glide a bit. That's where I see the work is at the moment. I think it's the last work we have is to extend the glide mm -hmm. and to try to mitigate as best we can. And I feel lucky to be in this country uh, because I think there's a better chance for us as a country to do some of that. Mm. So what do you think, what would you say that looks like on a, on a personal level? So for someone who maybe is, is still coming to terms with all this, is... <laughs> is um, they, shouldn't listen to, to they shouldn't listen <laughs> to this podcast. 
first of all. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this particular one, maybe some yes. of your others. Yes. <laughs> but but this is but this is what you this is what you teach. This is around um, acceptance and how people can can be. I mean, there's that beautiful quote that you you have in your essay that says, "On the last day of the world, I would plant a tree." I would want to plant a tree. Yeah. 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 W. S. Merwin. So, what yeah. would you? What does that look like for you? For for your life and what would you say to people that come to your retreats that are trying to move into this space? Um, I'm pretty careful about not bringing this subject up unless <laughs> somebody asks me and you have asked me. So sure. um, I, don't, I don't sidestep it when somebody does bring it up. So sometimes in my retreats, haven't had the chance to have a, a residential retreat for the last couple of years because the last year we've been locked down. Um, but um, the last few retreats I've had residentially, it does come up, and I can see some people are simply not ready for it. And so somehow or other, I mean, it's the power of denial and bargaining. They hear the conversation, but they don't get, they don't quite take it on board. It doesn't sort of land in them. Mm. My essay is very specifically for people who already sense this and for whom they're going to be reading it and saying, thank goodness somebody's saying this. And that is the kind of letters that I get. You know, gratitude for just speaking it and putting it all in one spot for different categories to think about. But I don't have any mission to wake anybody up to this. I, I don't think there's any... Um, advantage, frankly, to waking up to it too soon. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, um, do you think life goes on other than humanity? Like there's a, have you, have you read, there's a book by Bill Bryson called A Short History of Nearly Everything where he traces, you know, the scientific history of our world. And there's a beautiful introduction, and I just love the way he he describes um, human beings are a essentially a bag of molecules, you know. And if you were to take microscopic tweezers and pick apart all of our molecules and atoms, you'd leave us with a big pile of atoms and molecules. But there's something about the arrangement in us that makes us alive. Yeah. That makes those individual atoms and molecules alive. The mysterious element, I call it. <laughs> yeah. So do you think that that's with everything that we're facing, do you think that life goes on and are we just the next dinosaurs? Yeah, I do think that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Exactly that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the planet will be here, at yeah. least until the sun burns out. But then there's plenty of other planets and, and, um, and plenty of other stars and the... Mm the chances of life in the greater universe, even in our own galaxy, are just phenomenally high. Yeah. Um, now, it is interesting, and I, I personally don't believe in any kind of um, alien visitations here, um, but it is, and uh, there is a theory, and I talk about it in my essay, I do find this one theory quite interesting that many uh, astrophysicists have subscribed to, which is that um, carbon-based life forms, if they did develop anywhere in the universe, they would follow the same trajectory mm. as we have. So either they're on the way up or they're 
extinct, or they're about to be, which would explain, perhaps, one reason it might explain, uh, why we haven't heard from anybody. Mm. Um, and that also is a very um, kind of soothing thought in that it, again, goes to this no-blame point of, like, if this is just what intelligent life that then starts using the energy from its own planet and the resources of, the, of its planet. And as one of the people that I quote in the essay says, even if you were a life form somewhere where they discovered nuclear energy, but they just said, this is too dangerous, we're not doing this one. His position is that you would still be throwing lots of heat back onto your own planet due to whatever other resources, whatever energy you were, you were using. Mm. And if you were successful enough, you would overpopulate. And it would be um, what William Catton, who wrote the book Overshoot, calls the tragedy of human success. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Interesting. I wonder what happens... I mean, I wonder what happens after that. So another life form takes hold or, or I wonder, do we just do this all again? You know, in a few billion years, do we have the same conversation again? <laughs> you and me, same cup of tea. <laughs> you know, who knows? There's so many interesting theories that float around in the, um, you know, in, in the world of physics and astrophysics and, mm. um, you know, different dimensions and, Wormholes and you yes. know, all those kinds of things. I, I, I don't have any. Um, I have I have no neural receptors that understand any of it. So, yep. <laughs> um, I guess if you can um, if you can leave us with maybe a bit of your wisdom in, and it doesn't necessarily have to be in regard to the essay, but just in terms of your teachings and your your lessons and what you've learned over the years and how you approach acceptance and and calm and day-to-day life mm. what would mm-hmm. you say yeah i i see it almost as my obligation to find ways to be calm um not only for myself and it's certainly a benefit to myself but also for people around me and people i interact with and there's something very helpful about being with someone who you sense sees the darkness, um, mm. but who also has lightness in them. That's a very encouraging thing, and I have been very benefited by knowing people like that, people who've just been through hell, you know, people who were tortured as political prisoners, um, I've known many, many Tibetans over the years. I've been around the Dalai Lama many times, interviewed him twice. Um, I, I have been, I was on a Burma human rights organization for a long time. I am very interested in animal rights, and so I am privy to a lot of very uh, uncomfortable, <laughs> terrible information in that regard. And so the point being that I... <sighs> The, the darkness of what humans are capable of is is really shocking. <laughs> mm. 
But for those who can see it and not turn a blind eye and not dance around in some pretend bliss state and not just go into hedonism or any other kinds of addictions to shut down all feeling, um, those who stand in the fire of it and just say, okay, um, they're very, very inspiring. And, And those are the people who inspire me. And that is what I aspire to, is to be be like that, to basically say, yeah, I see it, you know, and I do struggle with sadness, and I do lean into calm in every way that I know how. I have a bag of tricks, mm. you know, and, um, mm. you know, I, if I notice something is agitating me and I can feel it in my body, I readjust, I move my attention, I look at it, is this happening right now? Do I need to be in this state of anxiety? Sometimes anxiety is your friend. You have to, in order to get out of a circumstance that's very dangerous, that you might be feeling anxious, and you think that's your, it's your alarm system saying, move away. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's just your mind that's tormenting you. Like in Zen they say, you're, you're painting a tiger on the wall and becoming afraid. Yes. You know, so... Um, that's what we do a lot with our imagination. And, you know, I, I spoke earlier about a sense of foreboding. I do have that because I am aware of lots of things that are happening today. <laughs> you know, um, so I do have that, but I, I'm in a constant state of balancing of like, if, I'm, if I feel like I'm getting a little into too much ingestion of that material then I take a break Mm. and I do something that lights my being lifts my heart you know and and that can be something as simple as a walk or a walk at the beach or even watching something that just kind of sweeps me away drama I've been using drama a lot (laughs) (laughs) and um, a call with a friend or listening to something or reading something or, you know, sitting silently watching the bird and the bird baths, etc. Um, I, know, I know when the imbalance is starting to occur. And so I, I adjust. And it's what I tell people who come to my events. It's basically managing your attention. Mm. So whatever your attention is doing is giving you the experience of life you're having in this moment. And you can, most of us can, move our attention around as needed. Not everyone, but almost everyone. Mm. I think when I, when I hear you speak and I hear you talk about these, you know, deeply, deeply harrowing ideas, but then I also hear about your ability to be you know, and be present and experience happiness. There's something really powerful in, in that, you know, in, in, it reminds me of a, did you watch Ram Dass's most recent documentary? No. It's beautiful. And he, he, he was an old friend of mine starting in the seventies. And he actually invited me to teach for the first time. My first wow. sessions of Dharma dialogues were as a sort of assistant teacher at his retreats. Wow. <laughs> long time ago wow. you've met everyone <laughs> he he says something he says um he talks about his stroke 
And he says, I don't wish you the stroke, but I wish you the grace from the stroke. Oh, beautiful. Which is really amazing. I get it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) That's the same for me. I wouldn't wish this knowledge on anyone. Um, But I do feel grateful for... It's like I, I sometimes say, it's like having the benefits of hospice in a still healthy body. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So I get it, yes. Yep. The grace of the stroke, and yes, the grace of the dark knowledge. It does have its own beauty, its own dark beauty, and its own light beauty as well. Mm. Interesting. So interesting. Catherine, you've got a, a not commonly spoken about perspective but I think it's so important so important to hear and I want to say thank you not just for having me and for having me in your beautiful home but um, you know, thank you for everything all the work that you've done and all the work that you're doing and everything that you're, you're being and giving to other people mm. well, thank you James and, and back at you for <laughs> the beautiful work you're doing um, my, my three listeners will be so happy to hear (laughs) oh they're not going to be that happy to hear this one (laughs) unless they're on Uh, the same page in which case they probably will be yeah yeah (laughs) all right Catherine thank you so much you're welcome cheers that was great it was was it an hour (laughs) it was 40 minutes